Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Anna Moyer. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Moeller. And we are here with Carly Muir today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I think we would like to start off today by just asking you, you know, maybe some opening questions about what salmon spawning is and how did you get into this area of research? Right. So salmon, I would say, are one of the more, one of the charismatic animals that we have here in Canada. And their spawning is one of the things that's so interesting about them. I think there's even a magic school bus episode about it. And so What's really interesting is that salmon are spawned into these rivers and they develop there for a couple of years before they migrate out to sea. And then when they make their, when they come back to spawn, they're returning to the same natal rivers in which they were born. And so that's something that I think has always fascinated people. And so um, sort of what I'm looking at is sort of the what goes on in that developmental period and sort of how did the conditions that are experienced during that time sort of prepare them for life and the conditions that they'll experience down the road? You know, that was great. Could you <laughs> give us just a little bit more context on, you know, what's, what spawning is for those who might not be familiar with it and, and how it happens? Right. Okay. So sure. So salmon spawning is basically the process by which females are coming into these freshwater streams and laying eggs and then the males are coming and fertilizing those eggs. And so what's really interesting about uh, some species of salmon, it's so your Pacific salmon like Chinook and sockeye, is that they only make this spawning migration once. So they only breed once and then they die. Whereas Atlantic salmon, which is the species that I focus on, they make multiple spawning migrations. So they're sort of going back and forth multiple years on these spawning migrations where they return to these natal streams, the females are depositing eggs and the males are fertilizing them and then they're going back out to the ocean. And so this is called an anadromous lifestyle. And what that means is that their life history is divided between both freshwater and saltwater. And they involve these really uh, aerobically demanding migrations to go back and forth. And that's really an evolutionary bottleneck for them because so much of their fitness is tied up in whether or not they can make these really labor-intensive migrations upriver. So in terms of your research, how does this play into uh, what you're actually studying? Right, so what we've found as people have started sort of paying closer attention to the thermal tolerances of animals, is that salmon are really locally adapted to the thermal conditions of these natal streams. So the conditions that their ancestors experience on their upriver migration uh, has put the selection pressure on future generations such that they perform their best at temperatures that were experienced by their ancestors in these, on these migration routes. And so with climate change, what we're finding is that so many of these populations are narrowly adapted to uh, the past temperature regimes, such that their performance is optimized near average summer temperatures, and they sort of die around peak summer temperatures, the current ones. So what we're finding as climate change increases the frequency of heat waves in these record heat events, sort of like what we were having a couple weeks ago, it's really um, 
causing these salmon to die off. We're seeing these mass die-offs along their migration routes and in the juveniles that are living in these streams because these streams are so thermally unstable. And so the issue is the rates at which the climate is warming doesn't really allow for enough time for these populations to evolve to the new thermal regimes. So that's sort of where my work comes in is I wanted to look at sort of the capacity for plasticity. So how um, one genotype can produce multiple phenotypes within one individual's life history. So um, how did the conditions that an embryo is experiencing during development going to change the phenotype? So change sort of the traits it expresses later in life. So if an embryo is developing in a river temperature that's a few degrees warmer than what uh, the mother or previous generations experienced, will, they, will that then alter their physiology going forward so that they're able to withstand higher temperatures or are they sort of locked in to sort of what they evolved to withstand? And you used a couple of terms. I'm just wondering, could you sort of clarify genotype and phenotype and what those, those terms right, mean? Right. So your genotype is essentially what your DNA has encoded for you, what it sets out and predetermines. And a phenotype is sort of how that trait presents. And so one genotype can produce multiple phenotypes um, based on the environmental conditions. And so that's what we call plasticity is sort of the ability for one genotype to produce multiple phenotypes. So you can think of the genotype as sort of the code as it's written and the phenotype as um, the product that's sort of presented. Okay, wonderful. So what are your findings so far in terms of the phenotype actually expressing itself? Right, so what I did in my PhD was I took si siblings of salmon from one spawning and I divide them into two rearing treatments. So one set we reared sort of under the current environmental conditions, so current temperatures. And the other set, we reared them at four degrees higher throughout development to sort of mimic the projected increase in temperature by the year 2100. And so by taking ones that had sort of the same uh, genetic background and rearing them in these different environmental conditions, we would be able to infer that any differences were due to the environmental conditions that they experienced during development. And what we found was that when we raised these salmon at temperatures four degrees higher, they were actually able to uh, maintain their function to higher temperatures. So their optimal temperature, which is um, physiologically, it's where um, their scope is maximized, just where their performance is maximized. We found that that kind of tracked the increase in environmental temperature 100%. So their optimal temperature shifted four degrees along with that shift in developmental temperature but their upper lethal limit only shifted two degrees. So this is still um, positive. There is a degree to some, uh, there is a degree of plasticity in that, but it does suggest that perhaps that upper lethal limit that fish have is a bit more rigid. And that's concerning given sort of the climate change projections that we're facing. And why do you think that upper lethal limit might be so rigid? I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's if it's um, sort of a lack of genetic variation in the upper lethal limit or if uh, there's been a bottleneck and so they've sort of maxed out uh, their physiological capacity because something that you hear sometimes in physiology is that we have uh, plastic floors and concrete ceilings. 
So there's more wiggle room in sort of um, how you function at sublethal temperatures and less so in that upper lethal limit. Um, but it also not lost because um, in addition to sort of shifting their physiology and how well they can actually withstand these high temperatures, salmon can also shift the timing of those migrations that we are talking about. And that's not really what I study, but it's something that we're starting to see is that instead of uh, facing these warmer temperatures, salmon are migrating later in the year, say when it's to avoid sort of the warmer summer temperatures. Uh, and things like that. Although there are also caveats to that. There are carryover effects that that can have. Um, but yeah, that's sort of one option that we may see salmon populations go down as the climate warms. Now this question might be a little bit outside of your area, but I do know that there are some projects on revitalizing rivers by putting uh, tree roots back into the riverbeds to help kind of deepen the rivers and control temperature. Have you seen anything on that and, and does it actually positively affect uh, salmon populations? Um, so interestingly, in a part of my PhD work was done in collaboration with um, the Atlantic Sam, the Lake Ontario Atlantic Salmon Restoration Project, which is basically a push to bring Atlantic salmon back to Lake Ontario. And so part of that project is how can we restore sort of these natal streams to make them uh, more conducive to juvenile salmon survival. And so I don't know specifically about planting trees, but yeah, if you think about it, that would, if you can offer sort of thermal refuges where fish can go and sort of find a cooler pocket, that's something that physiologically would be super beneficial for them. And so just to tie it back to the work that I was doing, part of what we were looking at was, we're finding that when you stock, if you rear salmon in hatcheries, which is something that the MNR does, and then you stock them out into streams, one of sort of the limiting factors is that the salmon once they get the juvenile salmon, once they're in the streams, um, they can't withstand the temperature. So their thermal tolerance from living in a hatchery hasn't really prepared them for being in these thermally unstable streams. So that's part of why we want to see, can we raise the temperatures that we uh, rear these fish at in the hatchery before we release them? And will that sort of better prepare them for life in these streams? So pairing sort of how we rear the fish as well as making these habitats more suitable for them because there's been so much habitat destruction sort of before we stop to think about, um, well, we may actually wanna have these fish populations around, so. And what have you found so far? Have you found that, you know, when you phrase the temperature, the fish are able to sort of withstand going out into the big wide world as it were? So, Right now, we've just sort of tested in the lab to say, yes, it looks like if we raise them at these higher temperatures, they're going to be able to withstand higher temperatures, but we haven't taken that step yet to sort of tag them and send them out and see how well they survive. So that'll sort of be the next step uh, if the MNR and the uh, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters decide to sort of take our recommendation. Mm. And I was wondering, is there any difference in how the fish react to, for example, a short heat wave versus a long scale temperature rise? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so that's something that my work has also sort of tried to tease apart. And it brings back what we were talking about, those plastic floors and concrete ceilings. Sorry, I guess I should take a step back and sort of explain what's going on physiologically with fish when we're at these higher temperatures. So 
as ectotherms, um, their internal physiology is really tightly linked to external temperature. And so uh, they don't have a constant body temperature the way mammals do. So when the external temperature increases, that increases the reaction rates of all their biochemical reactions and their metabolism. And so our metabolism is aerobic, it requires oxygen. And so as these reaction rates increases, the oxygen demands increase at the tissues. And so in fish, it's thought that they're limited sort of by the cardiovascular system's ability to deliver uh, oxygen to tissues and meet these higher oxygen demands. And so when we think about sort of a higher average temperature versus a um, sort of these spikes in temperatures, we're sort of thinking about it in two different ways. So how much does sort of posting at a higher average temperature take away from um, your energy that you have available for things like growth and reproduction. So it's sort of slowly siphoning away your aerobic capacity from other things that would contribute to your fitness. Um, you can imagine that if a fish sort of uh, is always at this higher temperature that's above its optimal temperature, it's going to have less energy to invest in eggs and it's going to have a lower uh, reproductive output. Whereas yep. their upper tolerance um, it's that's sort of an acute warming response. And so how well are they able to sort of survive a one-off spike in temperature? And that's kind of what the experiments I did was looking at was how well can they respond to these acute spikes in temperature? And that's what we were looking at in terms of uh, the two degree increase. So they can sort of survive to two degrees higher, whereas their optimum is four degrees higher. So that suggests that they're almost tracking the temperature better in terms of their optimal temperature. So sort of the average increases, but um, when it comes to that upper lethal limit, there's less flexibility like we were talking about. So this might be outside the scope of your research. You talked a little bit about, you know, the upper temperature and withstanding heat. Have you sort of gone the other way to see how much lower the temperature can go where the, the fish will withstand? So I haven't done that, but others others certainly have, um, especially in um, the paper, I believe it's out of the Farrell lab, Matt Gilbert's work. And uh, they were sort of looking at Arctic char and they sort of did similar work that I did, but in both directions, they raised them as high as they could go and took them sort of as low as they can go. And yeah, obviously when you're, so when you're increasing the temperature, we see that their heart rates are increasing up until a point where they can no longer do so and they're no longer to meet those increased tissue oxygen demands. And it's sort of the opposite when you cool them down, the heart rate slows and they're no longer able to um, sort of move blood throughout the body because the heart is pumping so slowly. But then again, their metabolic needs are so reduced at those lower temperatures. And this might be not the best question, but I was kind of curious when you mentioned that there wasn't a lot of genetic variation and this may be a reason why fish are less able to adapt. Is this in part due to things like overfishing or the fact that salmon are not able to spawn in areas like Lake Ontario that they used to be? Um, so I'm not sure. So there's not sufficient genetic variation. That's not to say they have less genetic variation than sort of other species. But um, in addition to the um, lack of variation, there's just not sufficient generation time for adaptation to act. 
Um, I'm not sure how much um, fishing practices impact the genetic variation in terms of thermal tolerance, um, but that's an interesting question. Do you study like a specific type of salmon? Because I mean, there are I lots do. of different types. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So I study Atlantic salmon. Again, the reason we're interested in Atlantic salmon is because we have this partnership um, with the Atlantic Salmon uh, Restoration Project in Lake Ontario. And so, and again, Atlantic salmon, uh, I think they get less attention here in Canada because people find, you know, sockeyes a little more charismatic. Those are the ones that are bright red when they spawn. Um, mm. But the Atlantic salmon are neat because they have, um, they, they have more than one spawning migration. They're iteroparous, I believe. I'm going to get um, roasted by fellow salmon biologists if I'm mixing up semilparis and iteroparis, but I believe semilparis is when they only have one migration, uh, spawning migration, and iteroparis is when they have multiple or they have the capacity to do multiple. But that's why I think that Atlantic salmon are so interesting. So what kind of triggered you to begin studying salmon, specifically Atlantic salmon? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, what did I, how did I find myself here? Such a winding road. Um, I actually started out in research studying cell biology. I was looking at um, kidney epithelial cells from a frog and ECM remodeling. And that's what I did my honors project on. It was very, a developmental cell migration heavy project. But then I just sort of craved you know, I had always grown up loving science and loving nature. Um, when I was a kid, my dad likes to joke that I would tell people I was going to be Jane Goodall when I grew up. And so I just, I craved something that had more of like a conservation application. And so I sort of found, made a space for myself where I kept working with the supervisor from my undergraduate project who was a developmental cell biologist. And we partnered with a fish biologist who was doing this conservation work and sort of thought, how can we uh, create a project that sort of brings my developmental uh, molecular toolkit to sort of the salmon conservation? And that's where we decided to start looking at developmental plasticity, uh, specifically temperature dependent plasticity. And so, where do you think you, you might go from here? Do you have any, any plans for future studies or? I'm actually looking uh, into policy opportunities right now. Um, it wasn't my initial plan. I think I went into this expecting that I would continue on and do a postdoc, but just sort of the last couple of years, I've started thinking more and more about um, science policy and how we need more people, more scientists working in government and sort of um, fighting for evidence-based decision-making in our policies. So that's where I think I'm headed now. Fantastic. Are there any like good examples of policies that you might be working on in the future? I'm not, I'm not sure because I'm just sort of starting to have my interviews and stuff, but I would love to. So Canada is actually working on its first aquaculture act. Oh, um, Canada. And that's something that I would be really interested in working on uh, if possible, but I'm really open open to anything sort of climate change, fisheries, that's sort of my bag.
All right. So on a slightly different note, you mentioned that the heart function is a very specific issue with the salmon and their ability to um, kind of generate oxygen or produce, you know, live. And so I was wondering what the morphological or functional traits were that would allow a salmon's heart to kind of evolve to deal with these higher temperatures. Yeah, that's a really great question. So there've been a bunch of studies in this area and what a few of them have found is that the fish that are able to survive to higher temperatures or maintain their heart function to higher temperatures are able to achieve higher peak heart rates. And then there are other studies where fish that have a bigger heart, so that means they're moving a bigger volume of blood with each beat, are also able to maintain aerobic function to higher temperatures. And so heart rate and stroke volume, which is what you would get from a bigger heart are sort of the two components of cardiac output. So it's what this suggests in general is that fish that have a high, can produce a higher cardiac output can survive to higher temperatures. And so that's what I went into my project expecting to see, but I actually did not. But I did see some differences in morphology. So what I found was a thicker compact myocardium in the hearts of the fish that were surviving to higher temperatures. And so the fish heart is different than a mammalian heart because it's only two chambers. And the ventricle is the chamber that's really doing a lot of the legwork. So the salmonid ventricle, it's uh, this pyramidal shape and it has two layers. It has an inner spongy layer that gets its oxygen from the returning blood in the lumen. And that has this thick, powerful, compact myocardium that's receiving a coronary blood supply. So it's sort of getting the freshly oxygenated blood. And so what I found was that the fish that had a thicker compact myocardium um, were able to survive to higher temperatures and maintain their heart function to higher temperatures. Uh, and so the thinking here is that perhaps the hearts themselves are just better oxygenated and that allows them to continue functioning under these high temperature conditions and continue beating, sending oxygenated blood to the body tissues. Um, so this is a bit, this is in line with sort of what some people have shown in that others have shown when you sort of um, cut the coronary blood supply to the compact myocardium that reduces thermal tolerance. And so, yeah, my project sort of suggests that perhaps the, the functional trait in these fish is lending to a preservation of heart function rather than a greater overall cardiac capacity. So instead of moving more blood per unit time, it's just that um, the heart is able to withstand higher temperatures and it's continuing to function to higher temperatures. So it's not the pound for pound function. It's just that they're able to withstand higher temperatures because they're better oxygenated. All right. So kind of moving off that, I know that there was a study done a while ago in terms of foxes where they picked for a trait of domesticity. And as a result, the foxes kind of evolved to have more dog-like traits. So I was wondering, is it possible to select for that morphological trait of heat tolerance in the same way? Yeah, so artificial selection is, has been a part of farming for so long in agriculture. And so it's sort of becoming a part of aquaculture as well in that you can sort of choose the individuals that have a higher thermal tolerance. Um, and then selectively spawn those fish. Uh, and the reason for doing this, especially in aquaculture is like I was saying with the die-offs along spawning, spawning migrations, when we have these heat waves, 
We see the same thing in open net pens in aquaculture. So I believe off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador a couple of years ago when there's a big heat wave in the summer, they had thousands of their salmon dying in these open net pens and it was because uh, they were thermally stressed. And so that's something that people are starting to think about now. How can we artificially select such that we're breeding the fish that have a higher thermal tolerance? And this is also a consideration with that reintroduction into Lake Ontario. Should we be preferentially um, favoring so stocks that have sort of a higher thermal tolerance so that the ones that we're releasing into the wild uh, have a better shot at surviving these heat waves? Mm. And could you tell me a little bit more about what happens in these mass die-offs? Yeah, so again, like I mentioned before, we think that thermal tolerance in salmon is limited uh, at the level of the heart. And so uh, in the dives that we saw in Alaska a couple of summers ago, they did think that it was because of sort of a cardiac arrest in these fish. So their hearts were failing and that was causing all of these unspawned salmon that were on their way to their spawning sites full of eggs um, ready to make salmon babies were washing up and they were otherwise healthy. So they hadn't been killed by pathogens um, because thermal stress does make you more susceptible to, uh, it does sort of suppress the immune system, but they were otherwise healthy looking. So they do think that it was a collapse in their cardiac scope, sort of limiting their capacity for activity. Because um, as your basal metabolic rate is increasing with temperature as an ectotherm, and it starts to sort of approach and intersect your maximum capacity, the fish are kind of doing all that they can do to just sustain their resting metabolism. They can't swim, they can't do anything else. And so the longer they spend at those temperatures, um, the more likely it is that they're going to die and wash up on shore before they ever have a chance to spawn. Okay, and so these salmon are also like a really important part of a lot of animals' diets. And then obviously, of course, we also have people who, who fish, um, especially indigenous populations. So how does this affect the ecosystem as a whole and, and what do you predict in the future? Right, so it's a good point you bring up about them being um, a food source. And another thing that's really neat about salmon is that they represent a nutrient link between sort of the ocean habitat and the terrestrial habitats because they're coming from the, um, these marine environments getting nice and fat, swimming upstream. And then once they spawn, their carcasses wash up and they're eaten by bears and things like that. And then that's sort of um, a, a nitrogen influx sort of into um, the terrestrial environment. And so while these fish all sort of dying off at once uh, is a bit of a gold mine for say a bear or some other animal that's sort of eating their carcasses, um, that's sort of a short term benefit because we're going to find that in a couple of years when that generation that was unspawned should have been coming back to migrate, there'll be a dip in the population. So it's a feast now, but a famine later. Um, and again, it is going to sort of impact these small fisheries as well uh, in terms of just the unstable population numbers and that being worsened by climate change. Carly, you know, it, it does look like we're thinking about wrapping things up, but wonder if you want to share any social media with us or any way folks can get in touch with you? Um, sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just my name. So it's at Carly Muir, uh, which I'm assuming will be in the show notes here. You'll be able to get the spelling. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Anna Moyer, and my co-host was Elizabeth Moeller. We've been speaking with Carly Muir, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.